Thank you so much for coming tonight. Um, I hope that this new venue is going to work out well for everybody. At least it has parking, right? As compared to the bookstore. And there's padding on the seats, which is a little <laughs> Anyway, um, I'm really delighted that we have a chance to be here, and I thank the United Methodist Church for letting us come. And here we are, Michael, you and I, again. Glad to be here. That's a, a little, uh, I gotta um, be careful about the blasphemy, I guess. <laughs> That's very true. We'll have to have clean language, you know. So, Michael and I were just having dinner, and I said to him that I have an indelible memory of 1992 when Michael did his first ever book event with us in Scottsdale, and we had a little tiny bookstore on Main Street that held like three people. And so, so we gypsied our way down to a coffee shop. I'm trying to remember what it was called. Andrew, do you remember what it was called? Was it uh, Expressions? Expressions, that's right, Expressions. And, um, and that's where you all gathered to talk about the Black Echo. And Michael, remember your wife? Describe what happened when, when your lovely wife was looking at I've never done a book signing before. <laughs> so my wife was there, and uh, I, when, when I'm in the middle of talking, she's, I, I see her, and she starts going like this. And I thought she was trying to sing over like something in my nose. Trying to be like a real thoughtful about that. <laughs> anyway, she told me later what I'm supposed to be projecting. So there's that. I, I felt I was going to pay that off. Um, 
I was, I was at the, it was the, that store was the last looking at contract for me, and, and I was really thinking of retiring. Um, and uh, and so when I started writing Desert Star, I thought it was going to be my last book, and then it was in the middle of that writing of that book where uh, I kind of got a renewed energy and thought uh, I'll stick around. But I was already halfway through that book, so I carried through with, with Perry and his illness. And uh, you know that was that. But I also feel you know a duty. I thanks to you guys out there. Um, Harry's had a long literary life, and um, and I've been given this very fortunate thing that I get to show this guy across decades now, not years, decades. And um, you know, I really have to cherish that and, and, and be realistic about it. It says in the books, several of the books, he was born in 1950, so uh, his age is known, and I want him to face the kind of things that other people his age face, you know, he's never been built to be this kind of largely like hero, superhero or anything like that. Um, he has, you know, foibles of character and he should have them physically as well. So that's the way I've always looked at it. But when that book came out, it scared a lot of people. A lot of people thought it was like last time we'll see Harry Bosch, including this doctor who sent an email saying that uh, <laughs> I'm conducting a clinical trial. <laughs> this is a true story. Uh, a clinical trial that attacks his exact uh, uh, circumstances, his medical services, the cancer he has, that's my thing. And my clinical trial is showing some showing really good results. <laughs> so um, I talked to him and got all of his details, and so in a new book, Harry's a clinical trial, so maybe. <laughs> So maybe now we're out with me. I think that with any kind of treatment, the average person can survive at least five years and could be longer with um, um, leukemia. But the other good thing, the other good thing about this is that it does lead Harry and his half-brother Mickey to a new arrangement because Harry needs medical insurance in order to have the treatment and Mickey can provide medical insurance if Harry takes up a job. So who's driving the Lincoln? Yeah, so uh, it's a convoluted way to get Harry past this thing that I'll never work on the dark side. Um, you know, and so we find him as Mickey's uh, driver in this and, uh, and, and doing investigative work for him. And that was a setup that I thought about and I thought about it before, but I didn't have the idea of how to get get to that point. Because I just I just kind of love the idea that these two guys would be in a car driving through Los Angeles and they'd have their different points of view and different things, but they would also come to know each other better and probably respect each other better uh, or more. And uh, and so that was a, a key part of my thinking, uh, you know, before I started writing this book. So Harry, you will not be surprised to know, is not prepared to chauffeur Mickey. So the deal is that Mickey has to sit in the passenger seat. He doesn't get to ride in the back seat. I love that. The front passenger seat. Sorry? The front passenger. The front passenger seat. Right. Sorry. So and of course now they're riding side by side, so they can have more conversation. So um, we can talk about the title, but let's before that. There two legal terms in this book that are really crucial for your understanding of what's going on um, in, in the story. And one of them is called Nolo Contendere, and the other is called Habeas Corpus. So I think that Mike should explain to you what those are, because otherwise some of the story isn't going to really uh, resonate with you as it should. Well, essentially what this book is about is Mickey trying to get a woman out of prison, and he's been convicted of uh, killing her, uh, her ex, um, her, yeah, her ex-husband, um, who happened to be a sheriff's deputy. And she's in prison because she took a NOLA plea, and that allowed her, um, the evidence was stacked against her, uh, but she claimed she didn't do it, but she was facing either life without, 
Sun Rice Reef deal that uh, was floated, if she pled no, so she she's in prison, but still denies having killed her ex-husband. And uh, and so it, it is. Uh, you know, when you're the attorney, she probably explained. <laughs> uh, it is a opportunity. It's a plea that um, you can make where you, where you don't say I did it, but you're accepting the legal consequences of the crime. Right. Well, basically, you don't admit guilt, yeah. but you do accept the consequences. We may see some of that going on in front of us in the next year. So it's a useful thing um, to know. And it's usually shortened to NOLO, but the whole phrase is NOLO contendere. But that's the dilemma that Lucinda has, is that faced with the idea that she killed her husband who's a cop, which is never a good position to be in. Um, and well, tell us about, about her attorney, because I think, what is, what's he calling? It's a great name. Uh, well, his name is Silver, but Mickey calls him second place Silver because in court, second place is the building room. Um, anyway, uh, so Mickey takes over this case uh, because Harry has found it, and Harry sees flaws in, in the case against Lucinda Sands, and, and so that's what the book's about. And it's called a habeas corpus case or a habeas case, and, and that's um, that was where I started this book. I have Mickey Hallers pretty much based on uh, my college roommate, who's a criminal defense attorney, um, and uh, you know he's the guy who told me uh, there's no client as scary as an innocent man. Who uh, that is the first line of the first Lincoln Lawyer book, and so this guy has always kind of given me ideas big and small anecdotal stories and cases that he's had. He is a, a law partner, and so both of his uh, attorneys have been very helpful to me in, over the history of the Lincoln Lawyer series. And I was talking to him, and he's, he's my age, so he's 67, actually he's a year old, 68, so he's semi-retired now and doesn't do any corporate stuff, but he, he does appeals, he writes appeals. And he was working on the Habeas Corpus Appeal, which is, um, I thought was kind of boring, but, but he wanted to tell me about it anyway. And then, he, then he said the magic words. He said, what's interesting about Habeas, Habeas it's, it's an effort to um, get someone out of prison who's already been convicted. And uh, so what's interesting about it is the, you know, the foundation of our justice system is the idea that your innocence are proven guilty. Habeas, your client is guilty until proven innocent, and so it flips a, it flips the tenets of our system, and that's what caught my attention. And I like that idea, you know, because I've been. This is the seventh time I've written about Hall, the Lincoln lawyer, and I was, I was really, you know, the books are pretty spread out over the years because it's it's tough to, you know, when you're writing a legal thriller, it's always going to end up in. A room. It's always going to end up in that courtroom, in that box, where you're in front of a jury, Mickey's in front of a jury, and it's yes or no, guilty or not guilty. And, and so there's a repetitive nature to that. And so I'm always looking for a new angle. I mean, I love having Mickey in the courtroom and seeing how he strategizes and how he works and, and dodges and fakes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I love doing that stuff, but, it's a, but I want to try to do it in a different way if I can. Series characters that because so he can start fresh every time, and uh, you know, so this gave me an opportunity to try something new on top of that. Habeas um, uh, efforts are uh, almost always in federal court, and we haven't really seen Mickey in federal court before, so there's a lot of these subtle differences to be the writer that um, really intrigued me and and you know, kind of geared me up and said, Okay. I Really challenging, and the truth is, if you're going to run a law practice, even if you're driving it, I mean, running it from the back of a Lincoln, you still do have to make money. Um, I mean, it's a business, so he hasn't done a lot of pro bono work, um, but he's intrigued by this idea that Harry, who's been well, well, waiting for Mickey, you know, drives in, waits in the car, is sifting through various. Um, 
cookies that people have sent and believes that this woman, Lucinda, may really be innocent or is worth taking a look. Um, so you're giving Mickey a chance to do something different. And is that where the title comes from for this book? Well, I mean, the, the title is a double title, title, right? Double meaning for this yeah, book. Yeah, I think it, in some ways it's triple. The obvious resurrection walk is when you get someone out of prison. Um, they've been factually declared innocent and released. Mickey calls that the resurrection walk when they walk out of prison and their life begins again or they get a second life. And, and that's the obvious thing. You know that in the very first chapter of this book. Um, but also I think there's a, Mickey has his own kind of metaphoric resurrection walk. Um, I think that when you do series like this, you got to have places that I call, I call them pivot books, where the character pivots in a new direction, and that's the only way to kind of sustain a series, I think. Like in the Flash series, there's been several several pivots. In the Ballard city, uh, series, I think there's only been four books, but in the, in the most recent book, she's now suddenly in charge of the cold case unit. So you look for things that can kind of re-energize you and, and point your character and your readers in a new direction. And I, I, I need to do that now with the lawyer. And uh, so this book is, is the pivot as he discovers uh, a very uh, much more altruistic form of practicing the law than, than we've seen in, in the past. And um, you know, I think that's where he's, where he's coming from. And uh, as I said before, my last book, I thought it might be my last book, but something happened to me and I got re-energized and refocused and think I'll write at least a few more books. And so I, I kind of did my own little resurrection walk and, and got inspired and, uh, uh, you know, and hopefully I'll be uh, writing a few more books. So, so to me, it's three different meanings. Thank goodness that it actually happened, right? I mean, if we were sitting here, this was our last time ever. We have all the pews draped in black. <laughs> it is a little weird to be talking about a book called Resurrection Walk in a church. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've been talking about Mickey and to some degree about you, but the thing is that Harry, since you have aged him in real time, you need to find new ways for Harry to to work. And you know, he can't be he's he's left the LAPD and he did another little um, a gig in a different police department, and then Ballard came along, and he's worked in the cold case unit with her. But now, now he's working with Mickey. Um, so you've given him yet another, um, you know, career, so to speak. Yeah, I guess it's a little pivot for him. Um, I used to worry about that, you know. I made that choice in the age of time, and, and I reached a point where I said, Hopefully the hallmark of what I do is, is a uh, high level of authenticity. I don't, I don't think I'm 100% authentic about anything, but, but it's a, a finesse thing. You, you want the books to feel very authentic. And I used to worry like it's not authentic that some guy's 70 is chasing murderers. But the law enforcement has really changed in the last five to 10 years. And they, they you know, because of budget constraints um, and other reasons, they're much more reliant on volunteerism and almost every big city police department, Los Angeles Police Department is an example, has cold case investigators that are volunteers and some of them are pretty old. One of the, one of the consultants that's been helping me with flashbooks for uh, decades, um, I, I knew him way back when I was a newspaper reporter. Um, it's just I do love him because he can really give reporters a time of day. But anyway, um, you know, he's he's Harry Bosch's age, but he's a volunteer on a, works a couple days a week on a cold case squad in California, not not Los Angeles, a different county that he retired to. And last year he saw three murders. And so when I have some a real life example of, of someone still able to do the work, you know, he, he couldn't chase somebody on foot, but he can look at a murder book and, and see what's missing or see what's what um, should be done. And uh, so I think as long as there's real life sample, examples of that, um, Harry Bosch can, can um, you know, subsist for a while as a, as a character in my books. So um, when we started out, Harry didn't 
did Harry know about Nikki? I know Nikki didn't know about Harry, but did Harry actually know that his father had a second son? Yeah, um, in, this, in the second book, Black Ice, there's a, I don't do these a lot, but there's a little bit of a flashback. In the, in the uh, book, Harry is driving down to Mexico, so don't you know, I, I'm thinking my head is a long drive, and I want it to be boring for the readers, so instead he starts thinking about that something prompts a memory of the one and only time he met his father. And his father's, and it says in Black Ice, his father's name is Jay Michael Pollard. And when he knocks on his door to meet him, a little kid answers the door. And uh, so I, I know I had written that, so years later, it wasn't like a big master plan, but years later, I'm writing this book about the guy who works out in Lincoln. And I remember that scene, and I knew I could make this that little kid grown up. And, and he would be Harry's half-brother. So the setup would be Harry knew who Mickey Holler Pollard didn't know who Harry was. And uh, that becomes clear, I think, in the brass row of the second Lincoln Word book. Verdict is when Nikki wakes up to the idea that Harry or finds out anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a real good memory for my books because I'm always thinking about the one I'm writing. So I can't remember the circumstances of how they come to realize or come to know or talk about how they're half brothers. But I think it's Harry that's a you know, there's a certain antagonism there because Harry is a cop and doesn't have much use for defense attorneys and Mickey is a defense attorney. Not a lot of use for cops, but there was a book, and I can't remember titles either, in which Mickey actually does a prosecution that, yeah, you can look it up. It's not even <laughs> Look through these letters, look through the cases, and find find the winner. And that's 
characters, and you bring a lot of them into play in Resurrection Life. This is just Harry and Nikki, so who else has first to play? Well, I mean, we haven't, haven't seen Nikki's ex-wife, uh, Maddie McPhere. She makes a, a, what I think is a surprise and disturbing appearance. Um, Valerie shows up for a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really like some of the characters that populate the Lincoln Lawyer. Um, there's a, his forensic go-to witness, Arslanian. Uh, she's been in a few books before, and she comes back to, to a big degree. So, yeah. It's a universe. It's fun to have that universe of, of characters that you can pull in. Um, as a reader, I love that when I read that in other people's books. And so I, think I know when I do it in my books, uh, I think people will appreciate it. So when you're writing it now, do you see, you know, do you see Marna as the person that she is in the TV, or do you see Marna as you envision her? Uh, you mean as I'm writing? Yeah, I, I still see that in all my characters, even even with Titus Welber, I see the people that I created in my mind. Uh, it, it's interesting that uh, usually I get inspired to write a story by something someone's told me, so I'm, I'm like morally uh, inspired. And so I do hear Titus Welber's voice when I'm writing Harry Bosch, I just don't see him physically. And uh, same thing with Mickey Vaughn. I read somewhere that the tattoos of Titus Welber on his arms are actually his, but the tattoos on his knuckles aren't. Not all his tattoos are real. Even the tattoos on the knuckles are yeah. all his? Yeah, no closely it's the initials of his case. So did that change your, you know, if you're writing about Harry in any way? No, we just tell him to stop getting tattoos when he has. You say, do you like long sleeves? Did you be wearing them? <laughs> right. So, you know, do you think, do you think, Mike, that um, good television or movies, you know, enhances book sales? Um, it enhances them, but not, I think movies have a bigger impact, for, and I can't explain why, but, I mean, I've had both, so I, I kind of at least anecdotally can say that the Lake Lawyer movie sold a ton of
believe it was in a musician, right? And you wanted to do something about his life or his oh, care? Yeah, yeah. I mean, about, I think it was about 10 years ago. Uh, I did a I, well, when I say I did it, I produced it, which means I paid for it. You know? <laughs> I got people interested in doing it set up a lot of the interviews because I gave the people, but it was about uh, a musician named Frank Morgan, who I knew and is one of probably Aaron Bosch's I had done some book, book music events with him, and we had plans to do a tour where we would go to uh, music schools like Berkeley College and so forth. And he, he was notable because he had 27 years between his first and second album, and it was 27 years of crime and drugs and imprisonment. And, and so he wanted to tell kids, the young musicians, sick and he passed away before he could do that, so I, I made the film instead. You've also done podcasting. Um, are you in the middle of one at the moment? Yeah, I've one about half done, but um, I, I, other than books, I'm kind of mercurial in my, my interests, and uh, so I'm kind of, my interest in doing podcasts is definitely waning. <laughs> I was telling you after dinner that I read an, an interesting article today on the Guardian and newspaper about a literary agent and his approach to representing authors was to make them multi-channel artists. Meaning they wrote books, but they also could be Netflix, they could be doing podcasts, they could be doing all kinds of things. And Something wrong. And so 
And it's interesting because we had this Black Month uh, writer's strike that pushed everything in uh, on my sh the shows I'm involved in, the writing into my book writing time. And so I more or less had to quit the TV shows because I'm not going to sacrifice uh, my book writing time. That's, that's the, as I said, that's the engine that runs everything. We've talked about the setup for the book, but we and we can't say a whole lot without spoilers. But I do want to say that I think that the courtroom drama and the forensics in this book are exceptionally good. Are you um, as well steeped in forensics as it would appear if, for those of us who are reading the book? No, well, I'm always intrigued by it, uh, but for the most part, I like taking something that seems like uh, a panacea and, and showing its flaws. Um, this book, I wouldn't call it by any means a whodunit. Uh, to be successful in a Hades hearing, you don't have to prove that somebody else did the killing. You just have to prove your client did. And what this book is about is Mickey overcoming. It's, it's about how can you get her out because, because everything is stacked against her, including her own plea years ago. So it's, it's a, to me, it's a different form of a book that I've written lately in terms of, uh, you know, no, aha, they did it. Um, it's more like making, it's two steps forward, one step back. He'll think he has the evidence and then the judge will throw it out because he's made a mistake or it's not qualified, things like that. And, um, and I, I think it's based in reality. You know, uh, so to me that was the fun of writing the book, but I knew as I was writing it, this is not normally what I do, which is, you know, uh, an investigator, whether it's Mickey or Harry or Renee or whatever, seeking a, a hidden truth. The hidden truth is not important in this book. Uh, it's, it's what he can do in the courtroom in terms of proving his client innocent. I tell you, the character that I really bonded with in this book is the judge. She is absolutely wonderful. Pay attention to the judge, who's a lot smarter than you might think, and who kind of gets the last word. I think she's fabulous. Do you actually know any judges like that? Yeah, I know a couple of them. They've been very, very helpful to me. Um, and they're, they're both female judges, so, uh, I mean, I know other judges, but I mean, the two that I really kind of drew on are the female judges. And uh, yeah, I like the judge too. And maybe we'll see her again in another book. That'd be wonderful. So, speaking of another book, is there another book in the works? Uh, not in the works yet. Uh, I, my cycle is that um, I always start writing a book the Monday after Thanksgiving. And I know what I'm going to write, you know, and I've been thinking about it, and I've got a string and so forth. So, I know what I'm writing is it's a, it's a valor book. Um, and uh, uh, Harry's daughter, Maddie, is going to have a very significant party. Uh, that's about all I, I can tell you about right now. I don't have a title or anything like that. So I imagine you all would like to ask questions. Patrick, do you want to grab a microphone? Because I think that it's going to be really hard for people in the audience to be heard or somebody. So, so yeah, it's like 
person. Uh, I really want to have him bounce strategy and ideas off of someone. And I just thought it would be uh, really cool to have it be his, his father's old partner and, and I could put him in old folks' homes and things like that. Uh, one of the funny, funny things for me is that what set, one of the key things that happened to me early in my life that set me on the path to wanting to do this was seeing Longer by uh, a Robert Altman film from 1973, and Elliot Gould played uh, Philip Marlowe. And now Elliot Gould plays Legal Siegel in the in the uh, Lawyer show. So it's a, a fabulous circle for me to kind of close and um, to have him in a, a show I created, and I might not have created that show if I hadn't seen him in the movie. Um, so it's pretty cool. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about how you think you've evolved as a writer? I don't know if you ever review your earlier books, but can you talk a little bit about how you think you've changed if you've had as a writer? I think um, I don't like to go back and look at books. Sometimes I have to just to make sure I have something straight. But in these writing rooms for the shows, you know, they analyze books, and sometimes it's kind of brutal because they talk about stuff that is, doesn't work. <laughs> You know, so I'm kind of forced in the last 10 years or so to look at my earlier work. And I, I think I've changed a lot. I mean, I think there's a lot of characters in the early books that I didn't pay enough attention to, and they're the kind of cardboard characters. And what's nice is in the show, sometimes you get, get the opportunity to do it better. Uh, the one I think of offhand is Irving Irving, who's a kind of uh, antagonist of Bosch and really Books, but he's really, really kind of cartoonish. And, and when we come around making the show, it's a much different and much deeper and more interesting character. So, so I got to correct that in a way, or tell it again in the right way. Um, and, and I think that's the one thing I learned that um, every character counts, or no character counts, or something like that. Um, you really got to invest in all of them. And it takes more time. And, Will we be seeing Ballard in any upcoming series or movies? Uh, we're working on that. I just want to add one thing to the last question. I also think that I really honed what I do down to dialogue being the window into the soul of the characters. And so I, to me, dialogue has become king. And uh, so less detail, more, more and better dialogue is, is probably the evolution um, that I see in myself. Um, Ballard, yeah, we're working on that. Um, I think it has been shot um, uh, about eight months ago. Um, this is all interrupted by the writer's strike, but um, Amazon commissioned a writing room on Ballard, which doesn't even show it, but we're, we're writing a show, and hopefully uh, the scripts will uh, uh, you know, convince Amazon to, to go ahead with the second show around Renee. And there is all kinds of, just like my books, all kinds of cross uh, pollination of characters. Harry's in that show, she shows up in Boss show, things like that. So if we get that, it'll be a close, close to what I do with my books. I know Mickey, because he's on Netflix, Never get into a boss show. But, you know, <laughs> that would be fun, fun if uh, we can see Ballard and Bosch uh, crossing paths. So hopefully, you know, in the next few months, I'll know for sure. Mike, can you say a few words about that anchor on the book project, or is that something you could talk about? Yeah, I mean, the uh, book came out earlier this year about um, the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe. I'm a big Edgar Allan Poe fan, but I've always been a, fellow, uh, a Poe fan because of his writing. I didn't really know about the circumstances of, the, of his death. And uh, they're very intriguing in the series. No one really knows for sure. And there's many, many different theories, including the homicide theory, that has some significant weight to it. And I really got intrigued by this book, so me and a partner uh, uh, option the book to make a documentary, and uh, I'm in the process of directing that. And 
So uh, it's, it's a form of journalism to me, which has also been rewarding. So uh, I don't, the, the 175th anniversary of his death is next October, so our goal is to have that film out by then. Hi, thanks for being here. I know that we all have Harry being the lone wolf and the eagle that flies alone, and we know that the main woman in his life is Maddie, but at the end of his life here, do you think there's any chance that he might have another romantic interest? Um, you know, it popped into my mind when he was getting his treatment and the 60-year-old with the lead vest that he mentioned, she kind of took off when he was talking to Maddie about it. But I was just kind of curious, so I had some more dimension and tension at the end of his life. I, I think that would be really nice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's, it's funny you talk about her because Bosch uh, has this moment uh, where, as an investigator on this case, he's out in the field with Mickey's uh, forensics person, Dr. Arsene. And you can tell he's intrigued by her, but probably thinking, am I too old to be doing this or thinking this? And, uh, but I really like that part of the book. so. We'll see what happens. You've been progressing Bosch's age in real time with all your books. Have you ever thought about maybe uh, writing a prequel? Yeah. Um, I just love being able to reflect what's going on in the world right now. But, you know, I will probably reach a point where it doesn't make sense that Harry's doing anything. <laughs> so, so I think about prequel a lot. I mean, I've actually, I have a whole research uh, cabinet full of stuff about um, L.A. in 1972 when, when he would be a rookie cop. And, uh, and so I think there's a story there. I don't know if I'll ever get to it, um, but, I, but it would be a fun one to write. How old is I don't know how old Mickey is. Uh, in my mind, he's about 50. Yeah. <laughs> 
and he's kind of a big star in Mexico, but was trying to break into the bigger stage of American movie and so forth. And has been in some movies here, but um, I was completely unfamiliar with him. By contrast, I, I knew who Titus Welver was. I really liked him. I was the one who said, let's look at Titus Welver on Bosch. So I had a bigger hand in that. But it was like, I ne I'd never, I'd actually seen some movies that Matt and I was in, but I didn't recognize him yet, on his tape. But uh, people with better knowledge of acting and so forth than me really liked him. And so then we progressed to doing Zoom with him. He was in Mexico at the time. and. Uh, as a person, he is just so likable, and that like kind of sealed the deal. He's, you know, it doesn't hurt that he's pretty damn handsome, but, <laughs> but he just has this like really spark in his eyes when he's talking to you and talking about the part, and uh, that was really the moment. And I can only concur with other people saying he's our guy. I've been a Bosch fan since Blackjack Earl. My wife was with me tonight. Was never a Bosch fan, but she is. Where is she? She's throwing the camera up. But she is a Bosch legacy fan, and so guess what we're doing? As soon as it comes out, is it tomorrow? I think the last two. Um, now I noticed when I looked in Wikipedia that you actually write some of the scripts up, along with Titus Welliver. Yeah, is that correct? Could you talk a little bit about how? What that process is like and how that came about. Yeah, so the two, the, the final two that come out tomorrow, I think they're out now because I've already done some email from people who've watched them. Uh, the first one, uh, episode number nine, uh, Titus and I wrote. So uh, nowadays on streaming, they like, uh, no, actually, they show the credits in the beginning of Bosch so you don't get cut off. I'm Lincoln Lawyer and cut the credits. Yeah, working with him is really interesting because he's, uh, he doesn't even have a laptop. So uh, he writes stuff on legal pads. He'll you know, write out a whole scene and it'll be in the form of his handwritten. Or he'll um, tape record stuff because he tape records dialogue. And so it's very helpful. So it's a kind of antiquated way to do it, but it really works with me. So it also helps me to input his recordings or his yellow pages in, into um, uh, a script writing software uh, because I can kind of decide things. And so uh, uh, it's, it, it sounds like it's a bad way of doing it, but it, it, for us, we've written two times together, and I think the episodes have been pretty, pretty good. The, the one tomorrow, I'm really, I really love. To show tomorrow and see see why, but um, and, and and it's funny I'm the guy who writes the books, but when Titus comes in on the scripts, he like says you can write all that action stuff. I, I'm going to write the conversation between him and his daughter. That's what I'm going to write. And it's kind of like I should be saying no. That's what I should write. You write that. But but he has such a feeling for that relationship uh, that I. I don't almost change zero words, but anything I have to cut a little bit short because you always write long and then you have to cut back uh, to fit, fit things in because pages means money. And, and so we have like a page limit. Um, um, so production can not go over the budget, things like that. All kinds of things happen in the final tuning of the script. But initially, uh, his scenes of dialogue with his daughter are just, Just in a personal note, um, like many of you, we probably saw the Lincoln Lawyer, the movie with Matthew McConaughey, and it was a wonderful movie. And maybe we wondered how good the television would be with a new guy and whether we'd really be riveted to it. So I must submit that I started watching it with some trepidation. Uh, there's a thing um, called a MacGuffin, and it's that thing that's kind of invisible that can make a plot work. And in watching the first season of the Lincoln Lawyer with the new actor, the MacGuffin is right there in front of you during the entire series. I had read the book and I couldn't see it until the very 
the last episode of the Brass Burgers, is that the book that it's based on? I think so. And I thought that was just astonishing. You know, here I am, I've read every book Mike's written in real time. I have read that book, and while I was watching it, they were so good that I couldn't actually see the McGuffin. So if you have that same experience, I don't know what, sorry, I don't think it's me. <laughs> anyway, if you have a transition to the Lincoln Lawyer on television, um, I would recommend that you do it and test yourself and see if you can figure out what's going on before you get to the very last episode. Did you have any kind of a day-shopping experience watching it yourself? I mean, I know you wrote the book, but it was a long time. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.